Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we're discussing the future of fresh water in California. The heart of the state's water system is the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, which hydrates more than 23 million people and millions of acres of farmland. For decades, there's been wide agreement among water agencies, politicians, farmers, fishermen, and environmentalists that the Delta's water system is in dire need of repair. But there's little agreement on how to fix it and who should pay. The specter of floods and droughts driven by climate disruption are adding greater urgency to the latest chapter in California's legendary water wars. Over the next hour, we'll look at whether the long-feuding interest groups might come together for a grand bargain to secure California's water supply as it prepares for rising population and volatile rainfall patterns. We're joined by a live audience in Sacramento where Climate One is holding its first program thanks to the support of the Stephen D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Pisces Foundation. We're pleased to have with us four experts deeply involved in shaping the story of water in California. Bettina Boxel is a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. David Hayes is former Deputy U.S. Secretary of the Interior where he was deeply involved in California water issues. Jay Lund is Director of the UC Davis Center for Watershed Services. And Kip Lipper. Sciences. Uh, it was too hard to say. Watershed Sciences. And Kip Lipper is Chief Counselor for Energy and the Environment, the Office of the Senate Pro Tem, Daryl Steinberg. Please welcome them to Climate One today. Uh, Jay Lund, let's begin with you. Can you tell us, uh, outline for us, the major interest groups that have a claim on the water from the San Joaquin, the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta. Um, the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta is really central, this major hub in California's water resource system. Probably about 45% of all the water used in California either comes directly or indirectly from the Delta. About 15% of all the water used in the state comes directly out of the Delta. And so it affects people from the very northern part of the Sacramento Valley who take water out of the Delta by extracting water, diverting it for their farms and, and cities, all the way down to Southern California, which takes exported water out of the Delta. And what are the main groups? So there's people in the South that use the water. Outline the main groups that are sort of uh, the battle lines over the, the water from the Delta. So there, there are, to me, there are upstream users that take a lot of the water, two-thirds of the water that does not flow out of the Delta that would have is diverted upstream for the Bay Area and, and the agricultural users for the most part in the Sacramento, San Joaquin, and Tulare basins. Um, there are urban water users in Southern California that take water out of the Delta uh, via the state and federal water projects. Certainly a lot of Bay Area water users. Bay Area gets about 30% of its water directly out of the Delta, about 70% of its water directly or indirectly out of the Delta, with the Hetch Hetchy Aqueduct, McCombie River Aqueduct. There are also a lot of environmental interests in, in, in both the fish and the birds in the Delta that migrate through the Delta. And, of course, a lot of people live in and around the Delta and the landowners in the Delta that all have, have interests. Um, 
Great, that, that's helpful. Uh, Bettina Boxel, uh, there's often, uh, sounds like a complicated formula. Do you think mm-hmm. that there's any opportunity, uh, any light for an agreement for those uh, groups to agree on how to move forward on the Delta, or is it deadlock as it has been for the last number of years? Well, I frequently hear um, from people such as David that there is a, a consensus, but I think the consensus um, is still uh, among, you know, maybe three-quarters of, of, of the state, is let's try to get, continue to get as much water out of the Delta as we always have. I think that's the consensus. Nobody really wants to give up. And, and as Jay pointed out, every part, you know, it's, it's often, oh, big, bad Southern California and big, bad agribusiness in San Joaquin Valley is, is taking all the water from the Delta. And more water is diverted upstream from the Delta than, than, than is exported south. And I think all of the constituencies um, that Jay mentioned are basically uh, interested in continuing to get the same amount of water out of the Delta as they have. Nobody wants to give up anything. And so uh, I, I think uh, that is a, it, it's, it's a, it's a unfortunate consensus, and it creates a, a logjam um, that, um, you know, may, maybe the Delta Project can, uh, can un- open that up and undo it, but, but I don't know, because we, we still very much have, I think, most of the state wants to maintain the status quo when it comes to the Delta. So, David Hayes, what could break the status quo? There seems to be deadlock for over many years. These, these powerful entrenched interest groups that both want more or the, the same amount of water. What could break that? Well, it's, I think, uh, Greg, the consensus actually is not that the traditional amount of data of water that folks are getting out of the Delta can continue. Rather, I think the emerging consensus actually is that the status quo is unsustainable and things have to change. There has to be a move. And it's because of the, um, the, the 20-year, 30-year history we've had of trying to fix the Delta problem. We, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars and huge efforts like the CalFed program in the 90s have, have been devoted to trying to fix the Delta and work around the fundamental problem, which is these huge uh, pumps that pull uh, uh, six million acre feet of water a year through the delta, changing river flows. Uh, you've got a highly engineered system. You've got these islands that are artificial with, with seismic risk. As soon as there's an earthquake and there will be one, they will turn to soup and we will, we will have salt water rushing in. We have, and then climate change, which is a huge new factor that folks are realizing as, as, as the, the flows get more unpredictable, uh, more seismic, more risk to the to the levees, et cetera. Um, I actually think there is a consensus that the status quo can't continue. I also think there's a growing understanding by a number of parties that their traditional expectations have to go out the window, and they have to go out the window for a number of reasons, including climate change, and and they're 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 they're, they're at risk of 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 any reliable water supply in many respects. Uh, so this is, there, there is a chance, I think, with the governor's leadership, and he's extremely interested in this, with the Obama administration's uh, leadership in potentially forging a solution. But the next couple of years will tell the tale of whether it happens or not. Kip Lever, do you agree there's a window right now that could, is open, but could shut in a year or two? Well, there's a window open because the uh, the governor and uh, the political leadership in Sacramento, to some extent, is pushing the project forward. Um, but as was pointed out, this is this is a 20 and 30 year endeavor. In fact, I think Jerry Brown, the younger, when he was in office back in the 1970s and 80s, uh, made an ill-fated effort at the time to uh, address uh, the Delta situation. So, uh, the the issue of water policy in California, I think, too, is is the Delta. There's no question that the status quo. Uh, whether you live in the Delta and are worried about the levees uh, and the uh, the need for uh, better water quality or water supply, or whether you're south of the Delta and are looking at the uh, water exported, the status quo is not acceptable. At the same time, the question of focusing that entire discussion on the Delta itself, I think, misses the fact that other regions of the state increasingly have the tools and the ability to rely on their own regional solutions and at least, to some extent, manage their water destiny better than simply relying on a 
pipeline or a canal that runs uh, 400 miles down the Central Valley. We'll get to some of those other issues around the state in a moment, but let's talk first about the contours of a grand bargain. What would it look like? What would what would the rough shape of a of a, an agreement among all these water interests to move forward, Kiplipper? What would it look like? Well, if I knew that, I would be making a lot of money, I'm sure. I, I, I actually don't know. And I think, I think Bettina's uh, comment about the, the you know, a, a group of uh, parties in this discussion that will never embrace sort of a comprehensive solution, I think, is a valid uh, point. I, but I do think, uh, again, starting not so much with how much water can we ensure is coming out of the Delta, uh, although that's obviously an important question for the exporters, but starting with the fact, for example, and again, forgive me for returning to it, that the state of California uh, has, uh, you know, uh, a lot that it could do in terms of recycled water, water conservation, uh, stormwater capture, a lot of the new or perhaps not so new opportunities to manage water locally and regionally would relieve that stress on the Delta. And the 2009 laws that Senator Steinberg and others worked on uh, a centerpiece of that was essentially ensuring ecosystem restoration and water supply reliability, the, the two elements of which can be achieved both through uh, fixing the delta but also through managing water in other parts of the state more efficiently. David Hayes, what would a deal look like if you could draw it? I think, to Kip's point, a key part of the deal is it's not just about the delta. I mean, if we've learned anything, uh, it is that that California has massive water challenges all across the state. Arguably, a, a, a particular reason why the Bay Delta is even more important now than it was 10 years ago was that California had to get off the Colorado River. It was over-relying on the Colorado River, which uh, would, and now you've got more more uh, attention on the Delta. I, I think that the Bay Delta solution has to be nested in a broad state plan that looks at conservation uh, that 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 is is smart about how water is is treated. That looks at groundwater as a as a key part of the system. As for the delta itself, um, the there is tremendous suspicion that the exporters, the big bad L.A. San Diego axis with the the the, the uh, agriculture interests south of the delta, that if they're going to pay for uh, separating water, the water through tunnels from the delta. Uh, that they that they will only do it if they get a guarantee that they will get the amount of water they want. That will not fly. Will, will the federal government guarantee a volume uh, of no. supply to the south? No, that has become clear in the last couple of years. Uh, now let me let me step back for a minute. The the I think the the certainly the California proposal that will come out publicly within a, a month or two is going to suggest the basic infrastructure of the delta has to change. That, that you can't have those pumps on the south side of the delta pulling that water to get to, to the south because it just screws up the ecosystem. If you're a salmon trying to head for the, the San Joaquin or even the Sacramento, good luck. Uh, what the scientists suggested in the 2000 period, it'd be interesting to get the Jay's view on this, is that the best chance for some reconciliation, as you call it, Jay, to the delta is to, is to, is to remove that water that is now being sucked all the way through to take it out at the, at the robust Sacramento River up here and tunnel it underneath the delta so that the delta back and forth and natural flow or at least some semi-natural flow returns and you have a chance for improving the delta. You've got to, you've got to make the, the delta better. That's the 2009 law requirement. And you've got to also provide maybe a more reliable water supply through the tunnels, but, but no guarantee on quantity. And I, the scientists cannot be sure if this will work. And there's going to have to be a commitment to science and a commitment to uncertainty. And that's the question. Will this large an investment be made uh, primarily by the water users south of the Delta in the face of some scientific uncertainty uh, and, uh, uh, and quantity uncertainty as a result? Let's get Jay Lund on the, on the tunnels and then Kip Lipper. Jay Lund? Well, I, th- I think we're always going to have a lot of uncertainty about this problem. Uh, we're, we're really launching into a novel ecosystem. We're trying to reconcile a lot of different kind of interests. It's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very uncertain. However, I think we should not lose sight of the certainties. The certainties are this is not a sustainable system. This is a system that's declining, literally, in terms of uh, with land subsidence and with sea level rise. 
Uh, it's a system in which we have more in invasive species, uh, continued decline and, and resetting of the ecosystem to something that's not favorable to the endangered species and, and several other, many other species that are sort of lined up to become endangered if the ecosystems continue on their current path. We also have sort of growing economic value for a lot of that water. We'll be seeing a lot of, of water conservation, wastewater reuse, the stormwater recapture in some of the urban areas, but the urban withdrawals from the delta, of the direct withdrawals from the delta, they're only about a third of all of, of the withdrawals from the delta. So we, we're going to have a, a considerable problem in reducing demand enough to resolve all the problems, and that's not the only problem. We have a lot of other problems in the delta for the ecosystem and for the levees and the landowners than just the water exports and tunnels. Kip Lipper, uh, will the tunnel, should the tunnels be built and will the voters have a say in how they're built and how they're paid for? So perhaps at the, looking at the ballot in 2014. Under, uh, a couple of, uh, just a moment, I want to touch on Jay's point about the uncertainties and I want to add two to the list. One is the very, the uncertainty that, uh, David mentioned about climate change. It's not a binary uncertainty. In other words, there's going to be more water or less water. The snowpack changes, the changes in water uh, the the uh, hydrograph are going to have multiple and different effects on the delta and on the, the state as a whole. And so that's an uncertainty that's hard to model on a 50-year permit or on a facility that's going to exist for a long time. The second uncertainty, and the one that we're seeing uh, more and more in government these days, is, of course, the financial uncertainty and the cost of these facilities. Uh, I think the latest uh, figures on the BDCP are in the $25 billion range, and this is unlike the 1950s and 60s when the large state water projects were built and the federal water projects were built. This is an era when uh, state and federal governments are, are not as uh, flush in funds, if I can put it that way, as they have been in the past. And uh, no one knows that more than Governor Brown, who's pretty frugal with the penny when it comes to uh, the expenditure of public funds. Um, as to your question, I think the, the question about the tunnels themselves, I think, again, is really something that's going to be determined by the permitting process, and by this, this is, after all, BDCP is a that's permit That's the Bay process. Delta Conservation, it's a Bay, it's a plan for conserving the Delta. Right. Okay. And I think that's going to be determined, I mean, as, as David mentioned, the, uh, the, we'll see in a few months, perhaps even as, uh, as soon as a month, the uh, draft EIRs and EIS that come out for the project, and uh, we can take a look at those and sort of see how it's uh, uh, configured in terms of the, the actual project itself. But could there be something on the ballot that regulates how much water goes through the tunnels? Could so there be, some... yes. It, will there be uh, is, is an open question. I mean, under current law, the voters of California do not have a direct say, yay or nay, on the, uh, the project itself. One of the uh, ideas that Senator Steinberg floated last spring was perhaps to the extent that we are going to the voters to ask for their approval for a water bond, which is currently on the 2014 ballot and is being discussed in the legislature to be extended to a different date and greatly downsized and modernized and changed from the 2009 proposal. Um, one idea that Senator Steinberg has put out there is perhaps we ought to, while we're going to the voters, ask them whether they think the conditions under which this project is being brought forward are sufficient to ensure the Delta is protected and to ensure that the uh, uh, the guarantees that are, the assurances that are provided are locked into law. If you're just joining us on the radio, Kip Lipper is Chief Counselor for Energy and the Environment at the Office of the Senate Pro Tem, Daryl Steinberg. Our other guest today at Climate Water, Jay Lund, Director of the UC Davis Center for Watershed Sciences, David Hayes, former Deputy U.S. Secretary of the Interior, and Bettina Boxell, a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. I'm Greg Dalton. David Hayes, do you want to get in on that? I wanted to get to the question of the a ballot initiative on the, uh, perhaps indirectly, I think it's good to step back for a minute and talk about the, the structure of the potential plan that is going to emerge here in the next few weeks. The concept is, and, and uh, is that there will, the, it's called the Bay Delta Conservation Plan, which is, is a, a habitat conservation plan that is developed along the model of what's happened in San Diego and Orange County. The idea is that the regulatory agencies that have to be worried about the endangered species involved, and that includes the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and the, the NOAA folks and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they have to approve a plan that overall will improve the livelihood of the endangered species affected. The idea is that you take some risk with the species that are already on the downhill slide, it, but you have to have an upside as well. 
And so they're going to make the decision of whether an overall plan of separating the water, adding habitat to the delta, which has been, with the, the, the historic wetlands of which have been decimated, um, and, and developing an appropriate flow regime, which is a big uncertainty, will at the end of the day improve the species health and help restore the delta. Under those conditions, decision will be made about how much water will go through. What you're going to have, what the public will have shortly is the governor's proposed plan, the Bay Delta Conservation Plan, put out for public comment alongside half a dozen or more, I think it's more like nine or ten alternatives, including a no-action alternative, smaller tunnels, no tunnels, and there will be a public process with with vigorous science and vigorous um, uh, input by the public. Uh, so the, the hope is that perhaps that public process, which already has begun in, in robust fashion in the last several months, frankly, uh, will lead to a, either a breakthrough consensus or not, uh, or potentially, um, uh, you know, the, the, a desire to put some things on the ballot or whatever. Let's hope that it leads to a, a bigger middle than we've had traditionally here in this issue. Gina Boxel, who's going to pay for all this? Well, I mean, that's what I was going to um, bring up. I mean, I, I think the potential breaker of this project is is who is going to pay and how much water is going to come out of it. And the fishery agencies have been very um, uh, very firm about, no, we, we're not going to give you a guarantee. And the, and the, the contractors, that is the um, irrigation districts and the urban districts that are uh, will be that get get water from the, the South Delta, the export system you know, have um, begrudgingly agreed to that. But they still, and, and this is sort of going back to my first point, they still basically want a certain amount of water. And if it becomes apparent um, that the flow requirements, um, and a huge problem with the Delta is the amount of water that flows out of the Delta into San Francisco Bay is about half of what it was uh, historically before dams and diversions and, and, and exports. And so the, the fishery agencies are being pretty firm about we need, you know, a certain amount of flow, which means that means less water go, going south. And so particularly if agribusiness, if the big San Joaquin Valley irrigation district, particularly Westlands, which is the biggest irrigation district in California, if not the, the entire country, if they can't, you know, you know, be reasonably assured that they're going to get a certain amount of water, then it doesn't really become economically worthwhile for them to invest in this. This is a, a project that goes by the precept of the beneficiary pays. So um, the the contractors, urban Southern California, San Joaquin Valley agriculture, the Bay Area cities that get water from the Delta, that are part of the, the you know the big government projects that get water from the Delta, are supposed to pay the bulk of this. And the habitat restoration is is um, supposed to, to come from the federal and, and state taxpayers. Um, and so you're looking at an enormous bill um, and that's going to push up the price of, of water, particularly for the irrigation districts that were built on vast amounts of cheap federally subsidized water. I mean, the Central Valley Project is, you know, which uh, is what Westlands gets its water from, um, doesn't pay, the, the contractors do not have to pay interest on that. It was an enormous infrastructure project. Uh, and so they are effectively subsidized by the federal taxpayer. So the, I think that the make or break question really is, um, are the, the contractors who are supposed to pay the biggest bulk of this, are they going to stay in? And if this falls apart, I think it's, it's going to be because they decide that they can't get enough water to make it worth their while. And the participants um, um, are just going to say, you know what, it's, it's, it's not worth our while. We can't afford this water. So I think that's going to be a very, very interesting question. And in the, in the public comment period, I think there's going to be all kinds of sort of negotiations of, well, you know, I mean, there's talk now of buying um, uh the possibility is, has been raised of buying water from the upstream irrigation districts, the senior diverters who have, um, you know, senior rights to enormous quantities of, of water to increase the outflow. Um, but so that they're, the taxpayer, you know, the federal and state taxpayers would basically be subsidizing that. The water would be bought. It wouldn't, you know, um, 
the, the government wouldn't just be saying to the upstream diverters, okay, you know what, it's time to give up some of your water and let it go through the delta. Um, I mean, one, one thing that, that uh, you know, has struck me as, as a Southern Californian, and the whole debate about water in California and the delta is, is so often simplified into, oh, it's all going to lawns and, um, you know, swimming pools in, in Southern California, and that simply isn't true. Uh, most water um, that comes out of the delta or is diverted from the upstream delta from the San Joaquin Basin and the San Joaquin uh, Valley goes to agriculture, and far more water is diverted from the delta upstream, never, ever gets to the delta, never, ever sees, you know, gets within miles of the delta. It's diverted upstream in the Sacramento Valley and in the San Joaquin Valley. It's not, you know, <laughs> it's not going south. And in terms of, of conservation, um, yes, you know, all of California can become more regionally self-sufficient. But Southern California has actually done a much better job than than you all up here have <laughs> um, uh, in terms of conservation. And, um, you know, the population of Southern California has grown by about 4 million people in the past um, 20 years, and Southern California is usually the same amount of water. The population of Los Angeles has grown by more than a million people in the past 20 years, and it is using the same amount of water. Los Angeles is using less water than it did um, uh, 40 years ago, and its per capita water consumption is far lower than the per capita water consumption of Sacramento, which is just beginning to get meters. Um, <laughs> Adina Boxel, if you're just joining us as a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Uh, Kip Lipper, uh, she mentioned uh, agricultural use. Uh, Governor Schwarzenegger didn't go after sort of mandated restrictions on uh, agricultural use as, as would put some restrictions were uh, conservation goals were put on urban users. Is Governor Brown willing to touch, go after uh, a- agricultural use and put some mandated uh, reductions or restrictions? I think it's a very good question, and that's kind of one of the central questions about putting together this grand bargain that you referred to earlier. Um, what we do know is in 2009, we set a, a target, uh, 20% water conservation by 2020 for the urban areas of the state. Agriculture resisted that. Uh, we've put in place uh, a requirement that agriculture develop plans for conserving water, but they're not subject to the same numerical requirements that the urban areas are, as Bettina uh, points out. And so the notion, the, the obvious question here is if in 2013 we've already met a 20 percent by 2020 water conservation target for all urban areas of the state that that law subjected it to, why couldn't we do more? And if Los Angeles and Southern California have already exceeded that, God bless them, let's keep going. And if Northern California needs to do more, they should do more as well. But the point is that there are these other, much as we talk about in our energy area, the cheapest kilowatt of electricity is the one that's saved or not used. The cheapest water in this case is the water that's going to be conserved. Jay Lund, Jay Lund, what are some real success stories in terms of uh, areas of the state that have wisely, prudently started to more efficiently manage their water resources? Well, I think, again, I'd come back to what Bikina uh, mentioned in Southern California. They've done a tremendous job uh, over the last couple of decades of reducing their per capita water use of uh, uh, so water conservation, a lot of wastewater reuse, some stormwater capture, things like that. They also pay a lot, a lot of money for water. When they're down there, I think the wholesale price of water is 800 to $1,000 an acre foot for, for finished water, uh, treated water. We haven't gotten to that point up here in the north. Uh, the, but I think we, we spend a lot of time talking about urban aspects, urban water use, but we have to understand that only about 20%, 15 to 20% of all the managed water use in California is urban. If you want to talk about real water conservation, real water use reduction, you have to talk about agriculture. But that's a very different process. If you take a, a city, a house in, in California, and you compare it to a house in Australia which just underwent a 12-year drought, they'll be using maybe 30% less, 50% less water. If you take a tomato grown in California and a tomato grown in Australia, they take the same amount of water. So we're, we're, when we put all people in California, when you talk about reducing agricultural water use, they're talking about trying to make the farms very efficient in terms of making sure that all the water that's applied to the plant evaporates off the, off the plant. But we rely a lot on some of that excess water in the Central Valley to recharge the aquifers, which is our major source of drought storage. 
Well, what incentive is there for agricultural conservation if there's no specific mandates? Uh, David Hayes? Well, the, the missing part of our discussion here is water marketing. And, and uh, the... Which is what? Which is, Bettina referred to it in a, in, a, in, a, in a way I found interesting, where potentially a water-short agricultural district buys water from a water-rich agricultural district. Let's just keep it in the ag side because this is where the, the play in the system is. And, and if you have a robust water market, the water-rich water user up in the Sacramento Valley, for example, which has not had an incentive to reduce its water uh, use by investing in drip irrigation or whatever, may now have an incentive because if they need less water for their crops, uh, they may be able to sell the excess water to the ag uh, district south of the delta. Uh, or even south of the Delta among the exchange contractors and others. And, in fact, in 2009, when, the, the, when I, uh, Ken Salazar and I and the Obama administration came in, California was in the third year of a very bad drought. The, the water deliveries south of the Delta were 25% of the contract amounts. Uh, and, and we got through that collectively by water transfers. And, and the water transfer market continues to expand and I think holds great promise of, of helping ratchet down over uh, inappropriately, uh, if you will, overuse of water by some agri- agricultural districts. I think it has to be part of the solution. I think it, it may be one of the reasons why, potentially, the, the south of Delta ag users may be more amenable to not expecting to have their traditional export supplies if there's a robust water market. Um, so it's a, it's a very important uh, play, and and uh, and, uh, and of course there's the potential for groundwater banking as well to also uh, uh, provide some some grease to the system. David Hayes is a former uh, U.S. Deputy U.S. Secretary of the Interior. Our other guests today: Climate One or Bettina Boxall, reporter for the Los Angeles Times; Jay Lund, director of the UC Davis's Center for Watershed Sciences; and Kip Lipper, an advisor to Senate President Daryl Steinberg. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk about desalinization. Jay Lund, what role does desalinization play in California's water future? One of the, I think the largest project in the country is now under construction in, in San Diego. What, what's the future of desal in California? I think in, for urban areas, there is some potential for brackish water desalination because it costs about $400 an acre foot. It's all about economics, mostly about economics. Um, and, and so we're seeing over time some improvements in desalination technology, which are getting better. The, for ocean desal, the cost today, depends on who you talk to, range between $2,000 and $3,000 an acre foot. That's, that's very expensive. That's three times, two or three times the wholesale cost of water in Southern California today. And an acre foot uh, is how? Not enough water for about two households in Southern California, okay. two or three households. So $1,000. dollars one up here. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> That's what they used to say, but now they say two. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so about $1,000 per year per household. It's, it's fairly pricey, especially when you have other alternatives. Um, so I, I think it will be, it'll become a little more attractive over time, but there are actually some physical limits to how much energy it takes to desalinate seawater and at normal prices, that's still going to be, even if you had 100% efficiency, the thermodynamics of it are, it will still cost you about six to $800 an acre foot. Plus, there's a lot of energy that goes into that. Bettina Boxall, do you see a future for uh, desal in California? Um, I see a limited future. I do not see it as the silver bullet that many people think. They just think, oh, just put, you know, 20, 20 desal plants along the coast and we'll all be fine. Because it is very expensive. Uh, it is very energy intensive. And, and as Jay said, I mean, there are just certain, you know, thermodynamic basic amounts of energy that have to be used. And another um, uh, issue is that the whole water infrastructure system is designed the exact opposite way as desal. It's all designed, the big, big pipes are, you know, coming down from the Colorado River, you know, the aqueducts, whatever, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as they get to the coast. So all of a sudden, you, you know, you, there's no the pipes just aren't big enough. The infrastructure is not big enough to accommodate big amounts of water um, coming up from the coast because the system is designed for the opposite way. And, you know, rebuilding that uh, that infrastructure is, is very expensive. I mean, I you know, I, I forget exactly how much um, San Diego County Water Authority is going to be paying to, to build 
um, this, the conveyance system that takes the water up from the, the desal plant that's under construction. But it's quite a bit of money. So I think there is a, is a limited future. It's part of water geeks. They love to talk about the portfolio of water. Uh, and I think so I think it's part of the, the, the future portfolio of water sources in California. But it's not, it's, it's not you know, Probably a few the percent. answer. Kip Lipper, uh, Governor Brown recently uh, basically told the Water Board to hurry up and, and come up with some standards on reusing water, recycling water. That's some of the cheapest water we have is to reuse the water rather than uh, these other areas. So tell us about the, the future of, of reusing water and who's doing it well. Well, again, these are these are tools in the toolbox that help meet the broader objectives of California water needs. And again, as Bettina mentioned, I think Southern California in particular has pioneered uh, recycled water. Uh, at one point, some folks referred to it as toilet to tap. I think that was a bit unfair, but the idea is that even if you're taking water that is non-potable and using it in uh, uh, in other uses that are displacing the water that you could use for drinking water, uh, that's a benefit. So I do think the uh, Southern California Water Agencies, the wastewater treatment agencies, uh, and others have pioneered a lot of uh, that sort of thing. The issue of stormwater management, I mean, the, the, uh, the system of managing flood control in California is calibrated to move the water through urban areas and out to the sea as quickly as possible. And that's a very good thing for protecting public safety, and it should be maintained. At the same time, in some areas, and you know, you often hear in Southern California or in Arizona or elsewhere, where you have these flash floods and you have a huge pulse of water that's available for a short period of time, and increasingly water agencies are looking at trying to capture that water uh, and to, you know, basically hold it back and then uh, use it later on when it's needed for water purposes. And so I think there's sort of a rethinking of the uh, flood management system that could be part of this discussion as well for a more efficient use of the water that is available in areas outside of the uh, Northern California Delta region. San Francisco encourages people to have barrels to catch, catch uh, rainwater. So it sounds like we're moving toward a less centralized, more decentralized water system, just as has happened in computing, is happening in energy. So it's a, it's a less centralized, more nimble system to get ready for, is that Jaylon? Is that accurate? Um, I think that it'll be true to a limited degree. Certainly on the stormwater side, we'll be trying to infiltrate a lot more of the water, but we're in a dry state. In, in much of the state, you couldn't capture, if you captured all the water that rained on you, it wouldn't be enough for all the water you're using. And then the, and then the farming areas, if you put a map of, of the state of where the water runoff occurs and where the farming is, they're in completely different places. So I, I think we'll get some benefits out of stormwater capture and, and some of these efficiencies, local, local works, but we're still going to have probably 60, 80% of our water that in many places comes from elsewhere. David Hayes? Just to put a fine point on that, I agree with Jay. I mean, the, the coastal plain of, of Southern California, which Bettina is uh, very proud of the water use of, um, and rightly so, still about a third of the water for, for, uh, for the 19 million folks in Southern California comes from the Colorado River. At the end of the Colorado River, a highly engineered importation of the water across uh, the, the Southern California. A third comes from the Delta. A third is indigenous. And there's some room there. Certainly the, the recycling has been, has, has, has been terrific uh, and stormwater and all that. But there are limits. As long as we have 19 million people in Southern California on that coast, there's going to need to be imported water. Uh, and and, and it, it, it's remarkable. Three quarters of the water uh, that, that is available to California is available in the north. Three quarters of the need for the water is south. I mean, that's the basic problem. And that's why this issue of how to deal with the Delta is so important. It is not the only issue, but it is an indispensable piece of the big puzzle, I think. And, and so the attention that is being delivered to the Delta, and a lot of it through with Kip and uh, Lipper and the, the leadership of, the, of California in the 2009 uh, uh, bill that, that was passed is appropriate. And in fact, uh, I should do a quick shout out to the Delta Stewardship Council that Phil Eisenberg uh, chairs. Very thoughtful uh, nesting of the, of the fundamental problem of, of bringing water north to south around a larger set of principles that include uh, some responsibilities for those who are drawing water on the Delta to demonstrate that they are drawing as little as they need 
to recognize the Delta as a historic and special place that needs to, needs to make sure that its identity is maintained and other important principles. Would you agree that the future of water in California is higher prices and higher uncertainty? David Hayes? Absolutely. I, I think the, the, the higher uh, uncertainty, the climate change piece, is a huge part of that. The, the loss of the, the natural reservoir that the Sierra snowpack has provided uh, means that you're going to have the, the, the water not sort of nicely uh, delivered uh, over the spring uh, in, into the receptacles of the infrastructure, but instead have a much more uncertain system. Jay Lund? Higher prices, higher uncertainty? Oh, I, I think so. I mean, we're, we're in a place where we have growing populations. We have growing, we don't have really growing agriculture, but we have growing value of agriculture. A lot more tree crops, nut crops, fruit crops, vegetable crops than we had in the past. So we, the value of our demands is increasing, and we're probably going to have less water. So what happens when you have growing demands and less supply? With gasoline, with housing, with labor, prices go up. We're going to see that in water. It'll be... It'll be much like everything else. Are we going to continue to grow cotton, rice, alfalfa in California? Water-intensive crops? Probably less. Probably less. And and we'll probably follow them in dry years. Uh, We're going to go to audience questions in a moment. First, I want to ask each of you what you are doing to manage your own personal water consumption, (laughs) as well as your carbon footprint. David Hayes, you're new here from, uh, recently returned from Washington, so tell us about your water and carbon footprint. (laughs) From an airplane. I'm I'm proud of my footprint. I have moved from a uh, large house in northern Virginia to a 1,200, perhaps, square foot a two-bedroom condominium on Stanford University's campus. So I'm doing my part. I do, uh, and I can't control the the irrigation things that come on at 6 a.m. Uh, on this uh, condo. But <laughs> but maybe with uh, with some uh, tough negotiations. No, I can't win against Stanford <laughs> University. Are you kidding? Anyway, Patina Boxel. Well, I'd say I'm very proud that I do not have a blade of grass on my property. I um, live um, on a small hill, and I have a terrace backyard, and I used to have a little bit of lawn at the top, which drove me crazy. It was half in sun, half in, in um, shade. Um, I got rid of it. I have decomposed granite and um, uh, drought-tolerant and succulents. I just, in my front yard, a small front yard, um, I put in native California plants. My peak water consumption has gone down by half during the winter. I'm really not irrigating at all. Uh, I have a high efficiency, you know, uh, a, a water appliances. There was one, um, uh, one water bill, I think, last year when I was, during the winter, when I wasn't irrigating at all, it was down to 25 gallons per day. And I went, yes! <laughs> Top that, Kip Lipper. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be the quintessential Northern Californian and say this. Uh, you know, I rely on the rain in the winter to, to do the irrigation. Like Bettina, we have uh, landscaped with low-impact uh, uh, landscaping, and uh, we do our best to, uh, to both in terms of energy efficiency in our house and the, uh, the whole house retrofits as well as uh, water. We've tried to uh, install the latest technology to make sure that we conserve water. Jay Lund. Uh, we have no outdoor sprinkler system at all. Uh, we all ha- we hand water everything we do outdoors. And uh, I ride my bicycle to work every day. Hey, we didn't get it. Uh, <laughs> I have a small, I guess I'll confess, I have a small patch of grass that doesn't get watered very much that probably should come out. I think it may after this program. And uh, <laughs> we recently... I'll be watching. We, uh, yeah, you can see it on Google Earth. Uh, we recently re- installed a recirculation pump that keeps water certain two hours a day that keeps water when the kids are taking showers. It recirculates the water so it doesn't go uh, down the drain. Uh, Jay Lund, uh, quickly, what could the, what's the most important thing the average consumer could do listening to this to reduce their water impact? Is it on outdoor landscaping? Is it on the food they use, uh, water embedded in food, uh, meat, et cetera? Where is it? Well, I guess I – well um, – it would be, in, in the Sacramento Valley, it would be to uh, not water your lawn. No lawns. Don't water your lawn. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Welcome. Thank you. I'm Steve Hopcraft with Restore the Delta, and there certainly is no consensus. We're more than 15,000 people that oppose the BDCP. And my question is, and I'll let you uh, choose who should answer it, 
the governor is refusing to analyze the true cost, a comprehensive cost-benefit analysis of the tunnels and who would pay, and more particularly is refusing to seriously analyze the no-tunnel alternatives the University of Pacific Economist has just come out with a report showing that all the benefits and much less costs are there without the tunnels. Two-thirds of that export of water goes to Westlands and Kern, growing cotton and pistachios and almonds, mostly for export. And I wanted to ask you, you decide which panelists, what can we do to get the governor to actually follow the law and DWR's requirements to provide a full comprehensive cost-benefit analysis of the no tunnels alternative. Kip Flipper. Thank you. <laughs> Steve, uh, we have this thing in a democracy called elections, and the governor's up for election next year, and he's certainly paying attention to the public in terms of their concerns about these kinds of issues. We also have other branches of government, including the legislative branch, Senator Wolk, who represents the Delta area uh, and the counties that uh, and cities in that area, has been very uh, aggressive and active in uh, pushing the governor to get this kind of information out. So I think, you know, public oversight, public information, using the legislative process, which we often do, to get this information out. I think our Natural Resources and Water Committee has had a series of very good hearings, not just on BDCP, but on other financing mechanisms like the water bond. And I think, at least in the, the uh, political branches of government, those are the ways to accomplish what you described. Jay Lund, is the no-tunnel scenario getting due consideration in the process? Um, I think that's what people are using as their sort of no-action alternative. So I, I think in that sense it is. Now, there's a lot of different ways you can make a no-tunnel alternative, just like there's a lot of different ways you can make a tunnel alternative. And I don't think all... It's never possible to look at all possible alternatives. That's just... so. But I, I, I do think that the proposals are going to have to change. Any proposal will have to change substantially in order to be useful in the long term. We're talking about the future of California's freshwater system at Climate One. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi, Rita Schmidt-Sudman, Water Education Foundation. I've been observing these uh, issues for a few years now. Yes, thank you. And uh, I wanted to bring up the issue, especially for the audience that's listening, as a matter, could it be a matter of trust? I mean, really, water issues are a bit like a marriage. If uh, you don't really trust that other person, it doesn't matter what you say. Don't we need, in the Delta, when we talk about these tunnels or whatever we're going to do, back to the peripheral canal, don't we need assurances for the folks in the Delta who have long-time water rights, who essentially get their water for free, who work with, you know, keeping the levees propped up and get some state funds for that, but uh, they need assurances that that water is going to stay fresh and they're going to have an amount they want, that it's not going to be salt water intruding, don't they need somebody like the governor to go down there, split a vein, and write in blood, I will make sure that your water isn't affected by these tunnels? Would that be the kind of trust that we could have so that we could go forward? Thank you. Who'd like to answer that? Kip Lipper? I think you've, one, you've, in one respect, hit the nail on the head, which is the issues here, are, as you've heard, are uncertainties, but also trust. And I think there are there's a body of opinion that, under no circumstances will trust the state of California and the federal government to issue 50-year and duration permits for huge new facilities that may or may not be operated uh, within the parameters that the law might require if the uh, fish and wildlife uh, agencies have their way. Th this is, David mentioned this earlier, this is the both the uh, beauty and also the complexity and uncertainty of the multi-species habitat planning process that the BDCP is um, but then there's the political trust here, and I do think that the voters of the state and the voters uh, who are affected by these kinds of decisions have to feel that their government institutions are making the right decisions, and I think that's, that is a, it's a valid point that the, the governor needs to convince uh, folks that that's the right way to go, and those in the legislature that support this kind of uh, policy making need to do it too. I, I do want to make one point, and I didn't uh, use the occasion earlier, which I should have um, when uh, Greg asked the question, but all is not lost here. You know, there are, there are there is a lot of goodwill in this discussion. There is a group of parties, including environmental groups, urban water agencies, business groups, and others, who have come forward with what they call a portfolio approach. It's not something that I think the governor and his agencies have embraced, but it's at least there, there's a conversation going on about different 
uh, approaches to uh, advancing water policy forward, including the Delta discussion. And I do think that there are opportunities to exchange those points of view. But I do think you, you nail it on the head when it comes down to it. It's about trust, and it's about political trust. It's also about legal and, and uh, you know, the kinds of statutory assurances. assurances that people get going forward that in 50 years' time, their children or grandchildren who are living in the Delta are going to have the same uh, kinds of uh, access to water and to the uh, fifth and sixth generation farming operations that they've had uh, down there as well. Kip Lipper is an advisor to the California State Senate President, uh, Daryl Steinberg. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Pierre Durar. I'm with the California Energy Commission and formerly with Fishing Game and their oil spill office. My question relates to groundwater. And um, when I was Fishing Game, I know that a number of our basins are in overdraft condition. And um, the economists talk about tragedy of the commons and sort of first come, first serve. And a lot of regions around the planet are overdrafting their groundwater. And so... Um, Part of the problem, I think, is lack of information and how much how much do we know about the conditions of, of groundwater levels throughout, who's taking, how much, and uh, how can we get a better handle on, on managing groundwater in California? Can't see it. We don't know what's going on. Jalen? <laughs> <laughs> if you look at groundwater, where does groundwater come from? It eventually has to come from surface water. There's almost no place in California where groundwater doesn't eventually come from surface water unless it's being overdrafted. There have been... A, a, There's an awful lot of water that's not flowing in streams because it's pumped out of groundwater someplace. We have to sort of, as the system gets tighter and the prices get higher, we're going to have to manage groundwater more tightly, just like almost every other western state does. Should we measure the extraction of it? Uh, I think eventually we're going to have to do it just like we do surface water. Uh, And in, in fact, we will be glad of it because we'll avoid problems. It'll be much easier to know how much water you have a right to use than to always be fighting with your neighbors about it. Kip Lipper, how, how could that happen? Has it been tried to be done to, to measure extraction of groundwater? It has been tried, and part of the 2009 comprehensive water package that David referred to included new requirements for groundwater, the uh, owners of groundwater basins, to report the elevations of those groundwater. And, it, you know, if I can use the analogy, it was tiptoeing into the water on the groundwater issue. This is a, a resource that provides between 40, 30 and 40 percent of the water uh, for the state. And as, as Jay mentions, it's not as if it's something separate from surface water. It's all part of the same system. And so having a better handle, having better information on what is happening in those groundwater aquifers and using them, um, not exploiting them, but using them for water storage and for other uh, capacities are part of making our system work better. And so we've got a first step. We need to do more. David Hayes. Um, the uh, This is a very important issue, uh, and it goes back to the original point that many of us made, which is the Bay Delta issues have to be seen in the broader context. The governor is preparing a new state water uh, plan that, that he expects to come out with by the end of this year. Uh, and it's something that, frankly, the federal government and the state government have been working together on because the, the Obama administration has invested a lot of money in, for example, water recycling, uh, water transfers, and realizing you need all these tools. Uh, the state's been very good, at least in the south, on water conservation. But groundwater has got to be part of the picture. There are other western states that are way ahead of California on this. Arizona uh, was an early leader with Bruce Babbitt uh, and uh, when, when the state recognized that you cannot continue to, to pump groundwater without uh, impact. Uh, I think we should all be expecting and hoping that the, that the governor will come out with an aggressive plan for, for uh, bringing California into the 21st century when it comes to groundwater use. It will be hard. Let's have our next question. Climate one of the Commonwealth Club. Hello. Yes. Hi. You'll have to forgive me for being a little colloquial. Um, my name is Brett Baker. I'm a sixth-generation sixth farmer from the Delta. Um, <clears throat> I have a – I just wanted to ask you, Mr. Hayes, if I were to tell you, just for example, I had a big pile of, let's say, gold outside for the, the folks at home. Uh, and, and I was going to sell it to you. Wouldn't you want to know exactly how much was there? Uh, and the, the, in, 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 in saying that, uh, continuing to subsidize surface supply uh, for our state, strapping our, our taxpayers and our ratepayers with this um, huge debt um, that is BDCP, um, aren't we in effect disin- – I mean, Jay said earlier, this is all about economics. Aren't we in effect Disincentivizing, if that's a word, uh, uh, those those efforts to conserve, uh, clean up groundwater, recycle, do do things in, in, of that nature. If 
if, in fact, we are going to um, invest a significant amount of capital in, in, a, in, a, in a project such as the tunnels. David Hayes? I think the assumption, is, as Bettina mentioned, and an appropriate assumption, is, is that the, the water uh, beneficiaries of such tunnels would pay the, the capital costs associated with the tunnels. This would not be subsidized by the federal government. Now, there is a, a notion that the entire delta in terms of the uh, habitat restoration piece of it in terms of, uh, uh, is a societal cost because we have, we have engineered that delta. We have agricultural islands now that are artificially maintained with levees, et cetera. So there is some arguable, arguable societal uh, 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 dollars that should be put into the pot, but that the very vast majority would have to be uh, paid for by the, the agricultural districts and the urban water districts to get the benefit of those tunnels. That's, that's new. That's to Kip's point that, you know, the days of the 60s in terms of, 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 of broad, you know, uh, public investment by all taxpayers in these huge uh, projects, um, uh, those days are over. But that's how we paid for the state water project, too. Right. I mean, we didn't do that with the CDP. Right. We the, did it with the, the state water The Central water Valley Water that's Project. That's the tradition yes. in California well, state projects. Yes. Okay. Good point. Let's <laughs> have our next uh, audience question. We're talking about the future of California's freshwater system. Hello. Hi. Uh, my name is Gordon Becker. I'm affiliated with a number of fish and wildlife organizations and some stream organizations. And it's very dismaying for me to hear that people in California don't even know where the Delta is or what it is. And they're not aware that we have the largest estuary on both coasts of the Americas. We have one of the last sustainable fisheries in salmon that exists on the planet. And I'm wondering if you guys have advice for how the environmental community can influence this momentally important decision that's about to be made to get the best outcome for water going out the delta and keeping our ecosystem alive. Kip Liver? Well, I think you make a really good point, which is the Delta is not just a, uh, you know, a canteen to supply water to the rest of California. It's also a place. It's a, it's a geographical region of the state on a map, but more importantly, it's a place that people live, and it has recreational values. It has enormous environmental values, as you mentioned, and it's a place that a lot of people uh, uh, live and, and work and call home, and so it's a, it's a very special place, and I think that the, again, not to give you kind of a Standard answer. One of the things that we did in this 2009 water package was to create a Delta Conservancy, an entity in the Delta uh, with Delta representation to help promote things like ecotourism, to promote the Delta as a place, both economically and environmentally, so that it becomes known in the same way, for example, that uh, some of the national parks might be known or other uh, national uh, designated areas. There have even been uh, movement by California legislatures to ask the Congress to designate the Delta as a national estuary. So there's a, a lot of interest in doing that, and I agree with you. The story is not told, and in this kind of a discussion, oftentimes it's reduced to the Delta just being this place where pipes or canals are going to be built, and there's, there's just so much more there than, than uh, meets the eye in the water debate. And, David Hayes, it's now state law that human uses and environmental uses for water are, have an equal basis. That's something that's fairly novel and new. Uh, yes, it is. And I will say that, uh, that even the traditional approach to environmental protection uh, has, has been a, an extremely important player, uh, backed by very effective advocacy by the environmental community in, in, in California. And, and I will say, uh, uh, you're, you, you make two points. Number one is, let's be reminded of the environmental richness of the Delta, and we do need to be reminded of that. Uh, and we need, to, we, we need to tell others about that and make it more public. I will say that, that the environmental community in California has been very effective uh, in keeping this system honest for many years. Uh, the reality, is, one of the reasons why the parties are at the table now uh, is because Year after year, the environmental community has brought lawsuits and ensured that biological opinions that, that regulate how much water can come through um, do uh, uh, take into account the endangered species requirements of the Delta. And that's why, uh, you know, this last year we had, we had the pumps turned off largely uh, around the turn of the year when the water was available. And then the water stopped, and now we're in a, a bad situation. But that, that's because the system, the, there's been integrity in the legal system. There is a recognition, though, that that 
can't do it. That we need to and 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 look when the the drafts come out within a few weeks, I think you're going to find the environmental community has put into um, the the Bay Delta Conservation Plan and and alternatives the notion that you not only do we have to deal with the issue of the water supply, but we have to show with biological goals that 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 there are going to be metrics to make sure that the delta is getting better uh, if if there are tunnels. David Hayes is former Deputy U.S. Secretary of the Interior. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Thank you. Craig Miller, Science Editor at KQED in San Francisco. As we go around reporting on water issues in the state, we hear two narratives consistently. One is we have a storage problem in this state. We need more reservoirs, more surface storage. The other one we hear is we don't have a storage problem in this state. We've got plenty of storage. We have a distribution problem. Who's right? <laughs> Jay Lund? <laughs> Um, to some degree, they're both right. Uh, we would always like to have more storage, but I'm not sure it's worthwhile paying for it always. And we would always like to have more conveyance to re- redistribute water. And I tend to think people will be willing to pay for that more, uh, but it, they're not willing to pay an infinite amount, that's for sure. Bettina Boxel? Well, I think storage is going to become an increasingly um, important issue with climate change because what's going to happen with climate change is we're going to have more precipitation falling as rain uh, in sudden uh, events and and not in snow that, you know, uh, gradually trickles, melts. trickles down. Yeah. You know, it's that it's that natural reservoir. So, uh, and the uh, operation of our of our dams and our reservoirs now is 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 very programmed. Uh, and it's programmed according to old climate models. And so that has to change. But it's a very, very uh, tricky balancing act because you let too much, you know, water out thinking that you're going to get, you know, an atmospheric river and, you know, 15 inches of rain, you know, something like, you know, what happened to Boulder. Uh, and it doesn't come, and then you don't have the water to release, you know, later in the year. You keep the water in, and then you can have an enormous, you know, flood. So... Uh, and I mean, another another uh, item with with storage is that there is an enormous amount of storage available underground. I mean, the Central Valley is is greatly overdrafted, um, and Southern California, I think, has about three million acre feet of of uh, unused groundwater storage. But it's but getting it in there and getting it out is you know is is complicated. So I mean there's 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 a debate. I mean and most environmentalists will say we don't need more dams, we don't need more reservoirs. We you know put it in the ground, and you know more particularly agricultural interests will say no, we need more surface reservoirs. I mean there's been long time proposals to um, expand um, Millerton Reservoir um, and um, Ray Shasta. and Ray Shasta, which is probably going to happen, and also create an off-site reservoir off of Sacramento uh, uh, in an area called uh, Sites. Um, We have a chance for uh, one last question. Welcome. Yes. Uh, Thank you. I'm Jane Wagner-Tyke with Restore the Delta, and I'd like to get back to the issue of um, Delta levees turning to soup in an earthquake. Um, I want to mention, for one thing, that the whole state is subject to earthquake threats, transfer, transfer system and whatnot. Um, but also, under the Bay Delta Conservation Plan, the primary conveyance being considered right now, 51% of the time, water would continue to flow through the delta, not in the conveyance. And so levees in the delta will be necessary for that. Um, under the um, 2009 legislation, the Delta uh, Protection Commission was um, required to produce a, an economic sustainability plan, which found that levees in the delta uh, can be reinforced for Oh, two to four billion dollars, much less than the cost of conveyance. And because there is so much infrastructure in the Delta, um, in fact, it calls it a mega region, uh, something like 20 billion dollars of, of energy and transportation, as well as water infrastructure in the Delta that needs to be protected. And so um, I would like one of your de- guests to address the question of what we will do to protect that infrastructure in the Delta. Um, and get past the idea that it's just a big bathtub or a place that will turn to soup. We'd like to take this. Jay Lund? The Delta is a very large place, and the islands are actually very different in many places. Certainly some of them have a lot of infrastructure. Some of them don't. Some are very valuable. Some are less so. Um, I think we're going to have to take uh, – this is a very serious issue. We, we, the state really needs to get serious about 
how are we going to prioritize our, our limited about, amount of money for these, these different islands, deciding which to protect, which not to. Whether you have delta tunnels or not, the, the speaker is right. We're going to have to maintain quite a few of those levees. And certainly before any tunnels would be built, we're going to have to continue for 7 to 10 to 15, to however long the lawsuits last, um, maintain quite a few of these levees. Before we wrap up, uh, we have not talked about fracking, which is a whole topic unto itself, but fracking in California and its impact on freshwater supply as well as contamination concerns. David Hayes? My experience with fracking in other parts of the country, certainly other water short parts of the country in the northern plains, for example, is that fracking uses quite a bit of water, uh, both in terms of pushing the, the pressure down. It's mostly water uh, injection. And then when the water comes up, there are, there are serious issues of water quality, uh, often with the, the water back, uh, coming back. I, I think the, the issue for California is going to be this potentially, um, could be another, uh, uh, competitor, uh, for limited water. Uh, and so it's certainly got to be part of the conversation. Anyone else on fracking? Yeah, I, I just want to comment too that there's, the, and we didn't, we haven't touched much on this topic, uh, but the issue of water quality is a key one, particularly in the Central Valley, the same areas of the state that both have very significant aquifer uh, groundwater storage capabilities and at the same time have uh, communities that are so heavily impacted by poor water quality that the uh, folks who live there can't even drink the water and or bathe in it. And so uh, fracking presents a new and as yet uncertain challenge, both on the water supply side, as David mentions, and California is unique. It's different than South Dakota in the sense that we have the water resources underground that we have. It also presents a water quality challenge, and I think you know our state water quality agencies need to step up to the plate a little bit because the chemicals that are being injected into the ground to frack are and oftentimes chemicals that are the same things we would prohibit if they were discharged into the groundwater uh, via a leaking underground storage tank. We have to end it there. We've been talking about the future of freshwater in California. Our guests have been Bettina Boxel, reporter at the Los Angeles Times, David Hayes, former Deputy U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Jay Lund, Director of the UC Davis Center for Watershed Sciences, and Kip Lipper, Chief Counselor for Energy and the Environment at the Office of the Senate Pro Tem, Daryl Steinberg. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to this special meeting of Climate One today in Sacramento, and thanks to the Stephen Bechtel Jr. Foundation, the Pisces Foundation, for making this possible. Thank you.